When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different. Bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Well, Allison, we've been doing this for five years. Yep, that's how long Doug Ford's been in office. And our first episode was about a month after he officially became premier. Yeah, the, the first episode was about the whole Toronto City Council cut thing. Which was the first sign, a big flashing neon sign, really, that Doug Ford was very into redrawing maps. When our publisher, Jesse Brown, originally proposed a Doug Ford podcast, the titles I suggested included The Good, The Bad, and The Dougie, Doug Day Afternoon, Dougville, Reservoir Doug, and Wag the Dog. So given the opportunity to riff on titles of films from Sergio Leone, Sidney Lumet, Lars von Trier, and Quentin Tarantino, we went with the Barry Levinson one. Uh, you, you hadn't seen Wag the Dog, had you, Allison? No, but I watched it when I was asked to do the show. And what did you think of it? Uh, it's pretty good. I remember finding it entertaining, but like not particularly remarkable. It's the kind of 90s movie that reminds you just how many pretty good movies were made in the 90s which is a lot more than you can say about the 2020s. Oh, I mean, I remember it was actually terrific at the time, but I I don't remember the details. Like, I just remember it was a quintessential Clinton-era satire co-written by David Mamet back when he was still, like, a highly respected playwright, not just a right-wing crank. Um, It was about, like, a a U.S. president faking a war with Albania, I think, was it? Yeah, Albania. Uh, In order to distract from a sex scandal, although even calling it a sex scandal now seems icky because I think, I, I recall, I think it's implied to be some sort of encounter with like an underage girl. I'm kind of scared to revisit it. Yeah, that part of the movie is definitely weird and, and dated, although they don't go too deep into anything that like gets grimy. Um, but moving past that, 
I did rewatch the movie last week to see, you know, we've, we've always sort of talked about either mm. recapping the movie or really like going deep into it. And I thought maybe like there were parallels mm. between the themes in it and the current Doug Ford government situation regarding the Greenbelt. And were there? Not really. The film's more preoccupied with concerns about cable news and its ability to manipulate voters and viewers through visuals. There was something, as you said, also quintessentially Clinton era about having to like manufacture a crisis as a distraction. Although weirdly, it was like loosely based on a novel about the first George Bush in the first Iraq war. It was kind of in that like about that hazy, relatively utopian period between the respective falls of the Berlin Wall and the World Trade Center towers when a leader couldn't just point their finger at any random extant crisis and say that. That's why I'm doing this arbitrary thing, because of that crisis over there. They sort of had to make something up. The end of history. <laughs> you know, basically, yeah. So all of that is to say what? Well, if Wag the Dog isn't actually an apt metaphor for the Ford government, what would be? If this Greenbelt thing were a movie, what would that movie be? I have some ideas, and we will get into those later in the episode. I mean, I was just, I was only thinking as far as like David Mamet's Red Belt, because like I, I thought it would be fun to play a game called Red Belt, Green Belt, in which I made you guess whether a line came from the 2008 Mamet movie or one of the Ford pressers held last week in response to the Auditor General's scathing report. But then I realized I'd actually probably have to watch the movie. And I, while I, I love doing research, seeing it, a movie in which Tim Allen has a dramatic role was too far, even for me. Too far? Like perhaps to infinity? And beyond? I'm Alison Smith, publisher of Queen's Park Today, and I did like the representation of a curt political press secretary in Wag the Dog. It was accurate. And I'm Jonathan Goldsmith, news editor at Candleland, and I remember when Barry Levinson wasn't best known as the dad of the guy who created Euphoria. This is Wag the Doug, a monthly podcast about Doug Ford. Before we get off the topic of Wag the Dog and into the topic of the Auditor General's report and the Greenbelt fiasco... I do want to talk briefly about the phrase, wag the dog. At the start of the movie, this title card appears on screen. It doesn't make any more sense when you read it than when you listen to it. Why does the dog wag its tail? Because the dog is smarter than its tail. If the tail were smarter, it would wag the dog. It's a confusing idiom because it seems like it's very simple, but then your brain, it kind of makes your brain hurt because you have to like twist it around too many times to understand what... They're actually saying, but like my read is that the politician is the dog, and if it were smart, it would control its own tail, the tail being like powerful interests. But if the dog slash politician is not as smart as those powerful interests, they will wag or control him. I always saw it as like the, the dog being like the electorate or the, the public and, and the citizens, whereas the tail is the politicians, but whatever. Yeah, I mean, I think the reason the idiom feels so overwrought in 2023 is that the idea of 
politicians being the bumbling face of something or being controlled by other interests is like so axiomatic. It feels like we don't need to dress that up as a metaphor. But it didn't even have a political connotation in its earliest form. Marion Webster sort of dates it to the play Our American Cousin by Tom Taylor from 1858, which Lincoln was watching when he was shot. The exchange goes, why does a dog waggle his tail? Upon my word, I never inquired. Because the tail can't waggle the dog. Ha ha. Ha ha, indeed. (laughs) Yeah, somewhat surprisingly, this specific line of dialogue from a play, which more people saw theater in 1858 than they do now. And it was a big play at the time, not just because of Lincoln, yeah. Yeah. It managed to really stick with Americans, and like within a few years, it was appearing in newspapers and was shortened from waggle to wag. Yeah, it really just became a political thing along the way. And of course, the film gave it another resurgence. And it had never occurred to me to suggest Waggle the Dog as the title for this podcast. I think we should change it. Mr. Premier, yes. you uh, you criticized the last um, changes to the Green Belt as being the result of, um, obviously, how we put it, a bunch of staffer, liberal staffers with crayons in a back room. But it seems like in this case, the changes were mostly decided by packets at a party. Well, Can you please explain yeah. why you guys for months and months and months denied, denied, denied that there was any problem here? until it literally had to be dragged out of you by an Auditor General report. How can anybody in Ontario believe when you you say there's no problem, and how can we be sure that you're just not gaslighting everybody? Alan, the the Premier's already addressed the the information. It's never great for Doug Ford or for any politician when a question they're asked at a press conference is more interesting than the answer or non-answer they offer in response to it. In this case, that was... Alan S. Hale from your publication, Alison, Queen's Park Today. He's really good. Because it's so easy to get bogged down in the details of what the Auditor General found. Um, and Because goodness knows that, that getting bogged down in details is what an Auditor General expressly does. But Alan kind of cut to the heart of it. The Ford government has effectively redrawn the map of this province, turning over 7,400 acres of land, three quarters of which is active farmland, to developers based in large part on solicitations at a party. We've talked before about how developers benefited from the very particular parcels of land that the government marked for housing development. And with some land purchases shortly predating the announcement of their intended removal from the Greenbelt, there was a lot of suspicion that something akin to insider trading might have taken place as in developers being tipped off by the government that certain properties were about to become a hell of a lot more valuable. The AG didn't find any evidence of that. What she found is that at a development industry function in September, a pair of developers handed brown envelopes to a PC staffer in the housing minister's office explaining why their land should be rezoned. And days later, he created a process to make that happen. Except the word process is too generous for what it was, as Auditor General Bonnie Lysak said at a press conference. We aren't even referring to it as a process in our report. We're calling it an exercise. Usually an Auditor General looks at processes that were flawed or that failed to be adhered to. In this case, it was so much of an ad hoc shit show that she wouldn't even dignify it with the word process. We were moving fast. We couldn't have had a better process. We could have had a better process. 
So the story, according to the AG, is that in the middle of last year, the housing minister's chief of staff, a guy named Ryan Amato, was tasked with figuring out how to rejig the Greenbelt. On an arbitrary deadline, because the government wanted to announce the changes as part of its fire bad, homes good legislation in the fall. I think you mean the More Homes Built Faster Act. But then this guy just went off on his own, apparently, without any supervision or oversight from the minister or the premier's office, and uh, made a Greenbelt project group that was somehow able to, well, they took on a project. Yeah. Well, they they conducted an exercise. Mm -hmm. It kind of reminded me, it's like what happens the first time you ask a print journalist to write a whole episode of a reported podcast, and they kind of go off and think like, okay, I guess this is how it's done. And then you remember too late that like, oh, wait, I shouldn't have just left this person to figure it out on their own because now we have a much bigger mess in our hands and a deadline around the corner. Are you speaking from experience, Jono? I mean, I've been on both sides. No. So the question moving forward is going to be whether this guy, Ryan Amato, broke any public service integrity laws. That's going to be something that the integrity commissioner is looking into. And I mean, will we ever know? Did Doug Ford and the housing minister, Steve Clark, really have no idea what Amato was doing? I mean, their admitted difference is strangely plausible. I mean, like, plus, what's the point of having a fall guy if he's not actually going to take the fall? I mean, like, as of this recording on Monday evening, he's still in his job, as far as I know. The Auditor General said her office spoke to the OPP. There's, like, loose talk that maybe the anti-rackets branch is, like, considering an investigation. But Yeah, but, like, incompetence is, is seldom in and of itself criminal. Well, in this case, is it criminal or not, a very small group of property owners stand to gain $8.3 billion. So, but the auditor calculated the $8.3 billion figure based on property value estimates from 2016. Just taking inflation into account, I th- in theory, would push the sum well past the $10 billion mark. Many observers see this whole thing as proof that the smarter, more powerful tale of Ontario's property developers and land speculators have waggled Doug Ford into getting them rich while destroying farmland and forests. I mean, Doug Ford says he's the one wagging the tail because Ontario needs housing. And if we don't start building more of it, then people are going to turn on immigrants. That that was his ultimate argument. So what kind of movie would this be? I don't know. I'm thinking like a Wes Anderson thing, like early Wes Anderson, Bottle Rocket Wes Anderson. Rushmore? I don't know. I feel like we don't know nearly enough about Ryan Amato's extracurriculars or anything about him, really. Like prior to all this coming out last week, his name was never really like out there. He's youngish for sure and has seemingly spent his entire professional life in Canadian conservative politics and was actually someone seemingly that Doug Ford like looks like he inherited from Patrick Brown's opposition office. Uh, we do know that Ryan Amato successfully coached the Ontario PCs to a 6-4 victory over the federal conservatives at the GTA Conservative Hockey Classic in 2016. And I guess it's kind of like staging a production of Serpico maybe. Well, in an op-ed on the TVO website, David Moskrop wrote that the AGU's report reads like an episode of Veep or The Thick of It, which is to say that it reads like a political comedy drama script in which incompetence and corruption run headlong into each other. And if I were his editor, I would have asked him, in what ways are those shows dramedies? I mean, but this could be a cynical political backroom comedy, although I kind of think that's the worst option for the type of movie it could be in a lot of ways 
I mean, most politics could could be that, right? Which is yeah. kind, of the, kind of the point, I think, like why the political parties and prime ministers and presidents are almost never directly identified on those shows. It's like, oh, you're, you're saying like, oh, this this wacky, shambolic political situation, you know, would be a perfect wacky, shambolic political situation, but on TV with a handheld camera, like, I don't know. Yeah, I agree. Because really all that is is, like, you have to do, like, character development for the characters, and that's what makes it, like, funny. It's not the actual things. Like, Veep is famously just kind of day-to-day nonsense. It's not about big scandals. Uh, I haven't watched all of it, uh, but... (laughs) No spoilers. Wag the Dog also does not identify the U.S. president. Mm -hmm. We should note. You never see him. You don't hear where parties from. I think he has a name, but... So, I mean, even that movie kind of falls mm-hmm. into that particular trope. Yeah. So if, like, we put them in a, in a situation where the, the people at the top aren't identified, that kind of lends credence to the idea that the those people at the top, the ones with actual power, are genuinely something of a remove from the people making the wacky decisions. And maybe there'd be, like, some fun scenes about them creating, like, spin doctoring the spin that Doug Ford and and Clark and everyone else in the PZ caucus has been spouting to try to, like, turn this report into, like, actually a story about how the conservatives are housing heroes. I'd put that in the movie, like some late night session where everyone's shooting ideas back and forth or whatever. Because what Ford is really kind of doing with the turning himself into the hero is pretty brazen, I guess, Gall- galling, inaccurate. We'll see. But like he, you know, the the PCs have wanted to own the housing issue since at least before the last campaign. They're the ones who never stopped talking about building 1.5 million homes. And in some ways, this is letting them continue to talk about that, albeit with I don't know if every know. many people yeah. are buying that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to me, this is sort of like where it. I don't know. It's kind of this is where it diverges from Wag the Dog, since there's like, there's genuinely a housing crisis, and it's you know so much easier to point, even dishonestly point, to a real issue as your excuse than it is to gin up a fake one from scratch. Though I do love how Doug Ford discusses the housing crisis as though it's all suddenly news to him. Like, did you know that people can't afford houses? We're going to do something about that. Well, one part of Wag the Dog I did like is when the film director they employ to create this Albanian war, who is played by Dustin Hoffman, he notably gets like very into this scheme. And at some point, someone asks him while they're kind of like shooting ideas around, they're like, okay, well, why does anyone go to war? And he immediately responds, they're trying to destroy our way of life, kind of succinctly stating a motivation for why one would pick up arms. And I feel like Doug Ford kind of did that in a similar thing in his press conference following the report when he was talking about housing. You know, the fact that anyone would get in the way, you know, (laughs) that the green belt would get in the way, that the mores that suggest you shouldn't just hand (laughs) uh, land over to to developers should get in the way. Well, all of that's like trying to destroy our way of life. We'll do everything in our power to support every newcomer and young family in search of the Ontario dream. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Okay, I got another movie idea for you, Jono. Okay. Let okay. me know what you think about this. Sure, sure. This is like the dark anti-hero movie. And in this one, we follow Silvio de Gasparis, the property developer who stands to gain the most from the Greenbelt rezoning. At least like $6 billion of that $8 billion is uh, handed to him. And it's the story of the wealthy underdog who spent nearly 20 years angrily battling with the provincial government over the green belt. We could have like lots of scenes of him in an office brooding over maps of Pickering. It's set to the greatest wall of sound pop that Phil Spector produced. Many people may not realize the extent to which Silvio de Gasparis fought the creation of the green belt when Dalton McGinty was in charge. De Gasparis was at the center of the story when the land was first protected in the mid-2000s because he was flipping furious that the liberals would forbid him from building houses on a large amount of property he owned. At the time, there was like a political donation scandal. Everyone was talking about at Queen's Park, although that involved him dining with McGinty, I'm pretty sure, spend, uh, paying big bucks to dine with McGinty. After the Greenbelt was created, he sued the government and lost, and he's literally been plotting revenge ever since, just kind of biding his time until a friendly premier would reverse the changes for him. And now he's managed it, thanks to Doug Ford. There's an amazing quote in the Toronto Star. In 2006, he told the paper, McGinty has already hurt me. I am going to hurt him. Even going through old Queen's Park transcripts, you find stuff like this gem from 2005 where he testified to a standing committee about the original Greenbelt legislation. Bill 136 leaves no right of appeal. This is not democratic. Even criminals have the right of appeal. Do landowners have fewer rights than criminals? As reported in the Financial Post on March 12, 2005, Canada's worst, Mrs. McGinty's nanny state, Wax Ontario. Is Ontario becoming what Russia was 40 years ago? All political systems fail if integrity, openness, and ethics are missing. As such, democracy transforms a government for the people into a government for itself. Now, I'm not sure where his Russia remark came from, since the Terence Corcoran column he cited actually compared McGinty to Pol Pot. <laughs> Uh, yeah, like, isn't this, you know, kind of seeing this like succession or something and just getting ready to go into the committee and screaming at the MPPs and, and just using every kind of instrument as he possibly could to to try to just flip this damn land over? Like, he also, you know, in this period of time, he donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to the PC party and like millions of dollars to get his family name on the wing of a Vaughn hospital. So it's... It's just, I, I like the idea of the, the, the person who just ne never quits and they're just so mm -hmm. just obsessed, unrelentingly obsessed. So with... it's like Rocky then? I've never actually seen a Rocky movie. Is that the Rocky, what Rocky movies are about? About him trying to overturn land use planning decisions? 
definitely needs the determination of Rocky. You're onto something with that. They take place over a shorter period of time than the, the uh. 2000s, but they do do kind of smash cuts of him training. So that, that would be the smash cuts of the Pickering maps and the checks sliding into different <laughs> politicians' hands. Or you could also approach it as like a white-collar thriller like Spotlight or Michael Clayton, where we would need a protagonist that uncovers the details of the Greenbelt scandal and like finds out just how deep the corruption runs. Yeah, I like that Bonnie Lissick, the Auditor General, specifically shouted out the journalists who first brought this story to light. I, I do want to say kudos and, and really congratulations to... Um, really great investigative reporting, and I believe it came from the Narwhal. I believe there was um, uh, CBC involved, and uh, I do believe a little bit from the Star as well. And um, thank you for that. I think the investigative reporting has a a place and a future still, and um, good work. And her report revealed another layer that would have made the investigative journalism extra challenging since 93 confidentiality agreements were signed in the course of this, like, this exercise, most or all by public servants, which is 93 more than I would have guessed since I presume that their oath of office would have covered all that. A white-collar crime thriller when it's done well is my very favorite kind of movie, but kind of for it to work... Some heads have to roll. A major politician would have to end up in handcuffs or resign or, you know, some sort of big conclusion that that changes the tides of history would have to happen. And I don't think we have that yet. No, you don't have to do, but you also don't have to, have to portray that on screen. You just cover that off with the titles. You just end with the report coming out and they're like, OK, that guess that's enough. It's not a very satis- it's not very satisfying. And that way, maybe it's more like it's more like she said than Spotlight. Not a lot of cloak and dagger stuff, and we're just like trying to convince people to go, a lot of trying to convince people to go on the record, and then they eventually have enough sources for a story. The end. Yeah, I wonder if you could do that with like an auditor general staffer as a character. <laughs> That's just even worse. <laughs> like we mentioned, there is some talk about the OPP perhaps investigating, but it doesn't seem like that's going to happen. What do you think? Well, they might kick it over to like the RCMP, which itself would be like, oh, no, no. The safe bet is always no. Like the political corruption is almost never prosecuted in Canada. In Canada, yeah. In Canada. It's almost – it's extremely rare for someone to go to jail over something they did in their capacity as an elected politician or working for an elected politician. Not unheard of, but it's so rare. It's not – no, the safe bet is always that there will be no – criminal consequences and no probably no legal consequences at all but certainly none that no, no criminal consequences I mean are there other political scandals in Canada that involve private a few private individuals or their companies making eight billion dollars though like I really think maybe we do need to back, I don't know <laughs> that's maybe a lot Quebec. it's a lot of money a lot a lot of freaking money and the gas plant scandal, which is like, I just kind of think about it in the same vein, because it seems like to me, no matter where the integrity commissioner probe goes, like, I think we're going to keep finding out more stuff mm-hmm. about this. Yeah. And the green belt is it's not going to go away. So for that reason, it's kind of it's akin to, I believe, the gas plant scandal for the liberals insofar as that it was just this lasting, long lasting mm-hmm. thing that they they couldn't escape and just kept bringing up new problems for them. Although when the liberals 
when that happened, when Dalton McGinty canceled the gas plants in Mississauga uh, right before an election and won those seats, he only won a minority government. And what that meant was at Queens Park, the opposition parties had a lot more power to bring up ethics complaints or like dominate committees and make politicians appear at them and compel documents and things that with a majority PC government are kind of impossible for them to do. So it's harder for the opposition to keep the story going. But yeah, the thing the gas plants scandal, uh, the Dalton McGinty's chief of staff, David Livingston, went to jail for, for was wiping government computers. So I guess that that's not really corrupt. Nah, I guess maybe it's kind of corruption in a different way. I'm not defending the gas plant scandal. It was like pretty sleazy politics to cancel those plants at the last minute and to lie about how much it mm. actually cost for years. But like at least that made some constituents happy. Like people were glad that happened. Like who's happy this happened? Like 10, literally like 10 guys. Yeah. But I mean the government, if they want to govern badly and give all the stuff, all this land away to a handful of people of their choosing – as long as they don't directly get something in exchange, is that even illegal in Canada? I mean, I'm just like an OPP investigation could compel bank accounts. You know, we could like mm -hmm. even is there not enough evidence to be like maybe they should look into it, even if we never find out what those probes are like maybe they should be freaking checking. And there were some there were deleted emails and messages. There were in, deleted in this exactly. Case. And yes, that's kind of why I brought that brought mm -hmm. that up as well. Deleted emails, the NDAs. Oh, corresponding with lobbyists with their personal email accounts. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. you know, even if the AG's report didn't find crimes, this is all very fishy behavior. Okay. Lastly, I think you could also do the movie as like a marriage plot rom-com film. Mm. Like a 90s movie and it starts with like a pan into Toronto and some, I don't know, jumpy music playing. <laughs> and it's all about Kayla Ford's wedding, because if you'll recall the stag and doe scandal, this was all happening really around the exact same time in real life as the, the Greenbelt stuff, which all of these things we talked about earlier in the episode involving the chief of staff happened last September, and her wedding was in October. So if we just pretend the like stag and doe dramas, like maybe on the Friday, the stag and doe's on the Friday night, the wedding's on the Saturday, but reporters are like calling the press secretaries or you know the the news has got out about the developers at the at the party giving uh giving gifts you know that's all coming out in the middle of the day and everyone's sort of trying to keep the bride in the dark but the the news ends up breaking during the wedding speech so maybe this is like a hallmark movie or something like green belts and wedding rings it would star someone who is not famous enough for us to remember their name ever heard of them before or ever hear of them again or alternatively, like Hilary Duff 20 years ago. Hilary Duff could work, for sure. She's got the right look. Okay, who are we casting for Doug Ford? Who would we cast? I mean, I Jim Gaffigan was cast to play Rob, Rob Ford in an AMC series that never ended up happening. Still hold out hope that's going to happen. What about Brian Cox? Too serious? E He'd bring star power, which we need. Michael Ironside. Ooh, he was in The Karate Kid. A He's sister film to those, Red Belt, Green Belt. <laughs> one of those Canadian... Uh, character actors who's been in like fucking everything for four, like 50 years. I feel like that has potential. Like I like condensing the drama. You don't get a report at the end of it, but you get like a Boy, you, you papers. 
Yeah, exactly. High jinx. Yeah. High jinx, which is maybe medium jinx, mid jinx. I mean, I don't think they promise high jinx with those Hallmark movies. Just just mid jinx. Everything's kind of mid. And and then this this version, I guess the reporters are, are the bad guys as they're trying to interrupt her nuptials with something about uh well, I don't know. The people who turn the want to pave over farmland are still usually the bad guys in these movies. So yeah, not they, about it they too could seriously. still be a bad guy because they're ruining the wedding. But then at the end, there's like the father daughter, and he's like, "I'm so sorry, you ruined. I ruined today. Like, I love you so much. I'll, I'll make sure this, I'll fix all this, and you know, it'll never yeah. happen again." And they hug. Yeah, and presumably, yeah, and presumably, the ending doesn't require end titles to say what happened next. You just have a, a you know, an aerial shot, or probably now there's a drone shot, pulling out from a, a, them hugging at a mansion. And as you go farther and further out, you see that's in the, the green belt. It's kind of like um, Band of Solaris. That could be funny. Like, I feel like you could make a better than Hallmark movie on this if you tried. Yeah, how did I get from Hallmark to Tarkovsky in, uh, <laughs> in, two long, in two sentences? All we need are some well-endowed investors. <laughs> that want to play around in the film industry, you know, get a little Hollywood. Rich guys love doing that. Well, I think there's a report with a list of, of names of people and companies that are uh, on the verge of a really big windfall. They're presumably looking for some places to put their money. Let's talk. And now it's time for Foreseeable, foreseeable. Disaster of the Month. Jono, what's your foreseeable disaster of the month? Well, after having spoken on this show about how all the promotion, great promotional work that Doug Ford has done for McDonald's and Tim Hortons and I can't remember, Harvey's, they kind of the second tier, the third tier places sooner enough, like like Quiznos or Arby's Taco or Bell. <laughs> Taco Bell or Dairy Queen. Oh, wait. Uh, no, they did that. They promoted oh. <laughs> Dairy Queen. Oh. Last week, a bunch of PCMPPs, uh, they picked up blizzards for Miracle Treat Day and oh. uh, spammed social media with their generosity. The money goes to children's hospitals. So would tax dollars, you know. Anyway, we did a whole episode about that. Yeah, I mean, I'll just, for my foreseeable disaster, yeah. follow, continue to follow up on that particular episode by, I don't know if you remember, we were talking about Ronald McDonald House because mm-hmm. that's where the McDonald's donation day, mm-hmm. the money went to, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and the PCs were promoting donating money to or buying food to give money that would eventually go to Ronald McDonald House. And we noticed that they were, Ronald McDonald House was also lobbying for operational and capital funding. Well, Ronald McDonald House got its miracle day and the province gave them $3.1 million on the weekend to open a facility near the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario. So Ronald McDonald and McDonald's Canada Corp is successfully, I don't know, just eating like, I think we said, eating out of each of Ronald McDonald's hands. And that was Wag the Doug, a show about the tail waggling the Doug. <laughs> I'm Jonathan Goldsby. You can find me occasionally hosting Shortcuts, which is the media criticism show that comes out Thursdays on the main Candleland feed. I'm Allison Smith, and you can find me on Twitter at, at Queen's Park Today. Our producers, Katie Lauren, Joe Foes, our managing editor, Karen Pugliese is our editor-in-chief, and our theme music is by Nathan Burley. 
Our podcast is listener supported. Go to Candidland.com slash join to help us keep this podcast going. You can listen ad free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Lisa Kudrow was fired from the set of Frasier. Charles Schultz was told he'd never make a living scribbling. Missy Elliott was dropped by her label. And Rita Moreno couldn't land a role of substance for seven years after West Side Story. The stories of famous names, their lesser-known rejections, and the insights those rejections provide. We regret to inform you, The Rejection Podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.